the vast majority of it was going to pay for the insurgency. It was about impressing the people in Washington rather than the people on the streets of Baghdad. I think there's plenty of evidence that the military did it. And off I went with two suitcases and some bedsheets and a couple of pots and pans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Dyson House Podcast, where it's my job to chat to experts who can help us delve into real issues in international affairs and how you can get involved in the fields that will change the world. I'm your host, Peter Bateman. We're brought to you by the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. With me on this episode is former commanding officer of the 1st Battalion of the King's Own Royal Border Regiment, Richard Iron. Despite a lifetime in the British military, Richard isn't really one for titles, preferring to enjoy civilian life without the formalities. Richard spent most of his career as a counterinsurgent, but he's more recently become a defence fellow of the University of Oxford and a council member of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. In this episode, we get a glimpse into what it's like to fight against insurgents and what it's like to live among them. Richard's story from frightened young soldier walking the streets of Northern Ireland to chief mentor to Basra Operations Commander in the infamous 2008 Battle for Basra, Iraq, is full of action and lessons in humility. Richard takes us to Europe, Middle East and Africa on his personal journey to understand insurgents. I really can't wait to have him back on. But until then, please enjoy Counterinsurgent, The Battle for Basra with Richard Iron. Welcome to the Dyson House podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. So you arrived in Basra, Basra, Iraq, in December 2007. Can you give me an idea of what the situation was like in southern Iraq at that time? By then, essentially, the British had lost. As you'll know, that the British, with Australian and other help, uh, were responsible for southern Iraq after the invasion in 2003. And in southern Iraq, unlike further in the north, in Baghdad, in Ambar, and in Mosul, the population is overwhelmingly Shia. So the British never had to deal with the problems that the Americans had to face with in the north, with the Sunni groups like Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And initially, at least, of course, the Shia were the ones who were most pleased to see Saddam go. So when we arrived, it was a relatively benign environment, and we were rather congratulating ourselves that uh, we had a transition from war to peace, which was peaceful. But by 2004, things had started turning very ugly, and it's largely to do with squabbling between Shia groups, struggling for political authority in the new democracy. And of course, the Shia were the majority, and so they were the ones who were going to rule in Baghdad. And it ended up with a, a Shia revolt in 2004 with an immense amount of violence across the Shia areas in the south, largely between Shia groups, but also very much aimed at the coalition, in this case in Basra, of course, the British. By 2006, 2007, there was only one real group left fighting to control Basra, and that was uh, the Jaish al-Mahdi, or the Mahdi army, often known as JAM or, or JAM, uh, who were loyal to Muqtada al-Sada, and supported, of course, like all the Shia groups were, supported from Iran, from the Revolutionary Guards. And they were the most powerful, by far, of all the Shia groups, and by 2006, 2007, essentially were giving the British a very bloody time in the city. Every 50% of every patrol was being attacked. The British bases were being rocketed and mortared at least four times a day. And we were, of course, losing a lot of people. Meanwhile, back in Britain, of course, like in Australia, the Iraq war was deeply unpopular amongst the, the population and, quite frankly, of doubtful legality. And so the government was in a really difficult position. Uh, how do we support the Americans with their 
enterprise in Iraq? And yet, how do we limit the risk, the political risk, and indeed the financial risk of the British operation in Basra? And as a result, we scaled down and scaled down the numbers of forces there and our exposure to risk as much as we could. Uh, but of course, the, more, the fewer troops you have, the more at risk they are. And so each time we, we scaled down, it just was an opportunity for Jaisal Mehdi, for Jam, to gain the upper hand. And by the middle of 07, essentially we'd had enough. And looking for a way out, we did a deal with the militia. Under that deal, we withdrew from the city to Basra Airport, about five kilometres outside, and would no longer operate within the city at all. Their side of the bargain was that they would stop attacking us, which they did. Also as part of the bargain is that we released in dribs and drabs the 70 Jaisal Mehdi prisoners that we held, and we had captured over the previous years or so. And so by the time I arrived in, in December 07, essentially we, the British, were at peace. Nobody was attacking us, and we were rather congratulating ourselves. But the situation in Basra was complete opposite. Because although when we left, we nominally handed over control to the Iraqi security forces under the man who I was then to go to mentor, General Mohan, a senior Iraqi general. Actually, he, there was no way that he was or his forces were strong enough to contest authority against the militia. The army was very weak and the police were thoroughly penetrated by the militia. And indeed, some police units, like the Serious Crimes Unit, was essentially a Jaisal Mehdi kidnapping unit in police uniform and murder unit. And so the situation in Basra was dire. We were okay at the airport, but in town it was Jaisal Mehdi that ruled. And it was their law, not the government of Iraq's law, that was the law that mattered. So, for example, in December 07, 40 women in Basra were raped and murdered. Now, the British back at the airport you know, put this down to an outbreak of uh, violent domestic crime. But actually what it was was Jaisal Mehdi imposing their law against women who they said dressed inappropriately. And that was their, their punishment for them. So that was the situation when I arrived in the end of 07. I just wanted to touch on your position then in 2008 as the chief mentor to the commanding officer of the Iraqi forces there in Basra. Can you just sort of outline your position there? Actually, it was a, it was a good one <laughs> in that I was outside the British chain of command. And so I could claim to work with the Iraqis to further you know, what the Iraqis wanted to do, which is to gain control of, of Basra and not have to work to the British chain of command. And this, uh, as it turned out, became, was really useful later on. Now, it was quite clear to me by early January 08 that the situation just couldn't go on. At some stage, the government of Iraq had to reclaim its authority over Basra. And General Mohan was in agreement. He was under pressure from Prime Minister Maliki, the Iraqi Prime Minister in Baghdad, to get a grip on Basra. And so, to so together, we started to plan an operation which would wrest control away from the militias back to the government of Iraq. The reason why it was important I was outside the British chain of command was that the British view at the time was that we had done this deal with Jaisal Mehdi, and we didn't want 
to upset the deal. And the idea that the Iraqi army was going to go to war against the Jaysh al-Mehdi would have put the British into a difficult position. So that was the reason why it was important I was outside the British chain of command. So we started putting together a plan. It was largely modelled, actually, on Belfast in Northern Ireland, where I spent a great deal of time. Similar-sized city, similar problem in some ways, in as much as it's got a very large part of its uh, urban area filled with urban dispossessed who support the insurgency. We were trying to establish a series of security force bases to help dominate at the ground, control movement and reassure the population, you know, the innocent population, that uh, they could withstand the intimidation from the militias. But there was no way that the plan was ever going to succeed without an extraordinary large number of resources. And the British clearly weren't going to help in terms of provision of resources. And so General Mohan asked me to find a way of him meeting General Petraeus, who at that time, you'll recall, was the coalition commander, the multinational force commander in Baghdad. So using friends, I managed to get in touch with his executive officer in Baghdad. And so Mohan and I found our way on a plane up to Baghdad, where we met General Petraeus, virtually the whole of the hierarchy of the the coalition and indeed the, the Iraqi armed forces to argue our case for additional resources. It was a interesting uh, discussion and resulted in, in a two-week study how much could the Americans and the, and the Iraqis actually provide um, to help support the, what we, we were already calling the battle for Basra. The Americans didn't really want to do it because they were focused on al-Qaeda in Mosul and just saw the sheer problem in the south as a distraction. But Petraeus, you know, actually forced the American Corps headquarters to take the, take the issue seriously. And we, so we worked for two weeks, we worked hard at finding the resources. Actually, it was all to naught, because during the, this period up in Baghdad, Prime Minister Maliki found out what was going on and said, that's a good idea. Let's win back Basra. And without waiting for any of the resources to actually arrive, he just flew down to Basra and ordered Mohan to start the operation immediately, which we did. The following day, we started small in a... Uh, in one just one of the the smaller urban areas in, in in Basra, and we it was like, you know, poking a stick into a viper's nest. The response was extraordinarily violent. By the end of the week, by Friday, we think uh, Jaisal Mehdi had massed five thousand armed fighters in the city. This is now in March two thousand eight. On the Friday morning, we start the operation on Tuesday. They conducted 28 simultaneous attacks on security force bases across Basra, overrunning several of them. One entire brigade of the uh, Iraqi Army 14th Division just disintegrated under pressure. So it was an awful, awful week. But Maliki, of course, could not be seen to lose. So the Americans brought down all sorts of additional reinforcements. And 1st Iraqi Army Division also came uh, with its U.S. Marine Corps mentors and training teams established inside them. The tide began to to turn, and on the 2nd of April, we mounted a really significant operation to reopen all the routes around Basra. And it was an operation that worked really well. By the end of it, the end of the day, Jaisal Mehdi still occupied its urban heartlands, its ghettos, the slum areas of Basra. 
but we had reopened all the routes. None of the military bases were under siege any longer. The tide had turned. After that, it was a relatively straightforward job to clear each urban ghetto, one after the other. By May, six weeks later, the operation was over and Basra was won. By 2008, you'd had 33 years with the British military. Do you want to wind back the clock, perhaps to Northern Ireland, in one of your first deployments, and talk about some of the lessons that you learned? Funnily enough, I I didn't really start learning from Northern Ireland until about my third <laughs> third deployment there, probably my sort of mid to late twenties. By which time, I was beginning to think about my profession rather more seriously. I remember it dawning on me, and it's obviously far later than it should have done, that if I had been born in the Ballymurphy of West Belfast, I would probably have been an IRA terrorist. And if the person who was trying to kill me on the other side had been born in my family, in my circumstances, he'd probably be in the British Army. It's just an accident of birth. And this is a blinding glimpse of the obvious, of course. But what it meant was that it allowed me to take the personal out of conflict. This wasn't personal. It wasn't personal when the kids are trained to throw stones at you. It wasn't personal when people just continually spat at you in the in the streets. It was just an accident of birth. And this depersonalization of it allows you to control your anger over you know some of the behaviour. And most importantly allowed me to control my soldiers' anger. So they weren't provoked by the stone throwing and all of the the aggro that was all designed to try and provoke some overreaction that could be then caught on on, on camera. So I mean that was one of the, the first and most important sort of lessons for me on my sort of journey. I'll come back to Northern Ireland in, in a moment, but I then went shortly after the Falklands War to spend a couple of years in Oman, in the Sultan of Oman's army. So I was you know, wearing Omani uniform and commanding Omani troops. And that's where I, I learned to speak Arabic, which helped obviously a lot in Iraq. But it also, probably more importantly, allowed me to understand and respect Arabs, Arab culture and Islam. And this has remained with me all of my life. And it's that uh, respect, probably more importantly than the language, that was the basis, I think, for much of my success, such as it was mentoring the Iraqis in, in, in 08. Going back to Northern Ireland, I've done lots of tours there. And one of the things that was very noticeable is that as you get more experienced, you can control the fear through knowledge. When I first went, it was just a faceless threat and I was frightened every time I walked around a street corner I'd be shot dead that fear is with you on every patrol but later on as I learned and understood much more about how they operated the weapons they used I was able to think like they did I could see that actually this kind of area that I'm in right now isn't the sort of place that they would mount an attack. They would mount an attack over there, and that's the kind of weapon they would use, and they'd be using it in that sort of environment. And, this, and these are what I had to look for. So I then started 
being much more knowledgeable. And then I, I still took risks, but they were educated risks, and I knew I could make decisions based on a balance of probabilities over what I thought the, the enemy was doing. And this really came to a culmination when I was a major in early 1991, 92, nearly 90s, when I was running operations in Londonderry, in the city of, city of Derry. And my opposite number, who was in command of the local provisional IRA unit, who lived in town, one of the estates, drove around because people were, you know, all the IRA terrorists were, were living openly, but unless we actually had evidence against them, which is up as opposed to intelligence, which would stand up in a, in a court of law, then, of course, we couldn't prosecute them. So I got to know him quite well because I made a point of stopping him at checkpoints and chatting to him. This continued my, you know, my journey of taking the personal out of it, but being able to give the en my enemy a face and a brain and so every night I would sit with my intelligence staff trying to work out what we'd got during the day, the what intelligence we were getting, to try and understand what was going through his mind and what he was planning and then try to prevent it from happening on the basis that terrorists who aren't terrorising aren't terrorists. And at that stage of the campaign, we were very much in the game of trying to take the heat out of the insurgency so that we could start moving towards some kind of peace process. That was important for me. I likened at the time to playing chess. I couldn't see what was going on in my opponent's mind, but by seeing the evidence in, on the board in front of me, I could make an educated guess as to what he was planning and then try and prevent it. And the final piece, or important piece of my education, came in Sierra Leone. This is after the war, when I was asked by the UN uh, to be an expert witness uh, for the War Crimes Tribunal in 2002-2004-5. One of the things they did was that they gave me access to about 30 insider witnesses, what they call insider witnesses, people who'd been insurgents, often in quite senior positions, as they, they asked me, how did these organisations work so I could give evidence on the organisations? And so over a period of two years, I spent quite a lot of time out in the jungle with people who had been guerrillas, insurgents, understanding what it's like to be an insurgent. And for me, it's an extraordinary opportunity because I spent my entire career being a counterinsurgent. And now I had this opportunity to see what it was like from the inside of an insurgency. The thing that surprised me, although of course it shouldn't, <laughs> is they have just as many difficulties as an organisation, if not more, than we do. Uh, but it's sometimes it's difficult to see what those difficulties are. But if you can try and think like them, understand what their vulnerabilities are, then actually you can then start to design your operation rather more effectively, rather than thinking it from the basis of these are our strengths and these are the things that we're going to focus on. You sort of talked about the resume that you built as an expert in insurgency. You touched on all of the lessons you learned from Northern Ireland and Amman to respecting the culture and Sierra Leone to actually see what it's like on the other side. But can you tell me how you applied that in Basra? 
Yeah, well, I'd say an expert in counterinsurgency, although, you, of course, you have to understand insurgency to be able to do that. The first thing I had to do was try and unpack what by then had become the British narrative. The British were trying to find a rationale for moving out of the city, for moving out of, of Basra and indeed withdrawal, eventual withdrawal from Iraq in total. And so we created a narrative which had, like all narratives, had become an accepted truth. But the reality was that it was very far from the truth. And there were three misconceptions in this narrative. The first is that we confused the character of this particular conflict. By uh, 2007, we were ascribing the problem in Basra as a problem of criminality, not insurgency. The British catchphrase at the time went, it's Palermo, not Beirut. Uh, this is squabbling mafia families rather than a powerful insurgent organisation like Lebanese Hezbollah. It is absolutely true that there was a great deal of criminality going on, a great deal of money moving around. But that is not to mean that the basis of the problem was criminality, because insurgencies take money to make it work. For example, Jaysh al-Mehdi weren't given the rockets in which they rained down on, on the British camps uh, by the Iranians. They were sold them, and they had to... Every 107mm rocket, for example, was smuggled across the marshes, across the border, by the marsh Arabs, who would then sell them in the, for the region of about $400 each. And so uh, a typical attack of, say, 30 rockets on the British base cost them in the region of $10,000 for the rockets alone. Insurgency doesn't come cheap. In order to fund it, uh, Jaysh al-Mehdi embarked on a considerable number of criminal enterprises, including smuggling, or, and when we... For example, when we withdrew from the city, they took over the port. They took over the running of the port. Each day, they charged every truck driver coming into the port to collect the grain, to uh, distribute all across Iraq. Iraq is entirely dependent on, on imported grain coming in through the ports in the south. And they charged every truck driver $60 each. So every day, they were making $30,000 from the running of the port. This wasn't going into people's pockets, although I'm sure some of it did. The vast majority of it was going to pay for the insurgency. And so that was the first misconception, the criminality, not insurgency misconception. Connected, but they're not the same thing. The second misconception was that it was us, the British, the crusaders, if you like, in some Muslim circles, who were the problem, not, not the insurgency. If we weren't there then the problem would simply go away. And the rationale behind this say, this thought was that since night, when we were there, 90% of the attacks were against us. If we weren't there, then actually there wouldn't be any attacks. Of course, this is just plain nonsense. The reality is that the, the reason why the attacks were against us is because we were the only ones trying to uphold the law of the legitimate, democratically elected government of Iraq in Baghdad. Of course, once we left... Anybody who contested Jaysh al-Mehdi's law was killed. And so, essentially, you know, they ran their own little fiefdom until the Iraqi operation to free Basra. And the third misperception was that we had to let the Iraqis do it by themselves. We thought if we 
helped them in those last, in that last year, they would never learn to use their own systems. And we'll soon be gone, and so we need to encourage their self-reliance. And I saw Iraqi soldiers being killed and wounded you know, every day because we simply weren't helping in the way that we should have done. And uh, not helping the Iraqi army in its hour of need is not one of the British army's finest moments. What did the British do after the Battle of Basra? How did the doctrine of the, of the British army change? Did it change at all, or was it the same narrative? It completely changed. Fairly early on in the battle, the Iraqi commander, General Mohan, asked me for British units to be embedded in the Iraqi 14th Division in the same way as US Marine Corps units were embedded in the 1st Iraqi Army Division. And interestingly, you know, when I phoned up, the British had already, off their own bat, overnight got London's agreement to completely reorganise the brigade in order to be able to do this. So within 36 hours of, of the request, British units were all over Basra and helping the Iraqi army. And they continued to do so right until the withdrawal, a final withdrawal in March 2009. So it was a very much an eye-opener for the British. And at the 11th hour, when they finally did withdraw uh, from Basra, it was with head held high. Um, you talked about all the different lessons that you learned from each of these insurgencies and counterinsurgencies that you were involved in. I just want to know, what did you learn from Basra on a personal level and perhaps also what did we learn after the battle? There is a great danger, of course, in learning glib or trite things from a conflict. You take one of the biggest personal moments you know, that, that impacted you the most and that then influences the way you think about other wars, other conflicts. The saying is, you know, you're always fighting the last war. I've strived, I've struggled to not do that. And I think the only way that we can really learn useful, valuable lessons from any particular conflict is to really understand what happened and why, what worked and why, what didn't work and why. Because only in that way can you then apply appropriate lessons to a completely different circumstance, but which has a certain number of core similarities to something that you've experienced before. And so I think the real lesson that I've learned from Iraq is the need to understand what happened and why. Richard Iron, thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Please subscribe, like, and share us. And you can follow us on Twitter at Dyson House. That's D-Y-A-S-O-N House. So you never have to miss an episode. Remember, we'll be out every Thursday night. If you live in Melbourne, be sure to check out the AAA Victoria's website on internationalaffairs.org.au forward slash Victoria, where you can sign on to become a member and get discounted events and access to our academic journal, as well as up-and-coming speaking events at Dyson House. We have some great things lined up for June. We'll be discussing Russia, the Iran nuclear deal, or X-deal. And hey, if you enjoyed Richard Iron, he'll be sitting down with MS Guy to do a talk on the Iraq war in retrospect. That's for anyone who's in Melbourne. If you ever thought about a career in the UN, make sure to listen to the next podcast with Professor Ian Howie. He talks about his 40-year career with the United Nations and the best ways to get in in 2018. Thanks again for listening. I'm Peter Bateman. Until next time.